chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In addition to your own Bible, you may find it on the backside of your message notes or beginning on page number 342 in your worship Bible. Please follow along as I read. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your hear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. This is the word of God. I want to talk to you today about the book of Nehemiah a little bit. Uh, it's a great book with many, many uh, valuable lessons lessons to teach us. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and I, but I want us to talk a little bit about the whole book in a general sense first and talk to, talk to you today about the key to scriptural interpretation, about the key to social activism, and about the key to spiritual growth. Three things. We'll be, I'll try to be brief and quick. This will be kind of a flyover view of some big ideas that I hopefully will help you. First of all, what is the key to scriptural interpretation? What is the key to scriptural... How do we go about interpreting the scriptures, especially these Old Testament scriptures, with these ancient stories? How are we supposed to look at these stories? Well, I want to say to you this. The key to scriptural interpretation is Jesus. Now, I'll explain that as I go on. The key to scriptural interpretation is 
Jesus. You see, we need to understand, first of all, what the Bible is not. The Bible is not a collection of pithy tales with moral, uh, a moral application. The Bible is not simply an ancient book of Aesop's fables, right? And often we will look at the Bible and we will just find simple stories and apply them to our, to our lives. And so we might say, well, you know, David was small and he killed a giant, so God is, I'm small and I'll kill the giants in my life. How to defeat the giants in your life? Well, that's perhaps an accurate uh, way of thinking about the Scripture a little bit, but that's not fundamentally why the story of David and Goliath is in the Bible. It's about a bigger story that is going, that is going on. It's not simply a collection of moral stories for self-improvement. And so we've got to be really careful that we don't turn the Bible into simply one more list of to-dos, of things to do to get on God's good side. Because the Bible is a bigger story than that. And if you want to really understand the story, you need to understand the big story of the Bible and how the little stories of the Bible fit within the big story of the Bible. So when David is encountering Goliath in that famous story, yes, it's about a little guy defeating the the champion of the bad guys, but it's also about the people of God and how God rescued rescued them through David, and that God and that Jesus is the ultimate David, who gave his life to protect us from the ultimate giants of our lives, the Son of David. It's a bigger story that fits in God's larger redemptive history. The Bible is a story of God. God's rescuing and renewing the world and its people. The Bible is a big story about how God created this world and how this world is broken by human sin, how it is being rescued by God's grace, and how it is going to be renewed by the coming of Jesus and His Holy Spirit and the ultimate restoration when the new heavens and the new earth are made. The Bible is a big story about that project, and it is in that context into which Nehemiah's story fits. So here is what was going on in Nehemiah's time. Nehemiah is written about, or it occurs about 400 B.C. In fact, chronologically, Nehemiah is at the end of the Old Testament period. It's the last thing that's ever written in the New Testament. Yes, there are books that follow it, but they're talking about things that basically happened before it. 400 years before Jesus was the time of Nehemiah. Now, here's what had happened. The people of Israel had been called by God, and God had made a covenant with them, and God had brought them to this land as His promise, and through the promise, and He was going through the nation of Israel to, uh, to bring blessing to the whole world world and to all of its inhabitants. But the people of Israel were not faithful to God's covenant call. And so ultimately, and that call came about 1400 BC, about a thousand years before Nehemiah's time. Okay? And uh, they were not faithful to that call. So ultimately, they lost their land. They lost their independence. They lost virtually everything except for a promise from God that he would somehow make things right in the future. Now, Nehemiah has come into a time period when he realizes the city is in disarray. And the reason is because they had lost their land and they had been taken off to Babylon. In the meantime, uh, the people of Israel had not lived there. And now they've been back for about 100 years. And the people have moved into town, but it still looks like a war zone. They're still very unhappy. And this 
is part of God's redemptive story. Nehemiah knows that God is going to use the nation of Israel to bring about his deliverer. So it's very important that that nation maintain its cultural and ethnic identity. That's the reason for some of the bizarre things that happened in the book of Ezra, when you saw people doing crazy things to us in order to maintain their spiritual purity, because the Messiah was going to come through the nation of Israel. And if there was no nation of Israel, then God would have to find another way to bring his redemption to the world. So Nehemiah knew that it was really important that the walls of that city be secure so the city of God could be secure, so the temple could be secure, so that ultimately the people of God could worship God in worship, in spirit and in truth there in that place until the time which Nehemiah would not have known, ultimately, when 400 years later, Jesus would be born and he would be dedicated in that, uh, in that very temple before the Lord. Okay? The Bible is that story of God's redemptive history, of God bringing, bringing through the people of Israel the promise to renew and restore this broken world. So this is the context into which Nehemiah hears this story. Now here's who Nehemiah is. Nehemiah lives in the city of Susa. Again, it's about 400 years before Christ. About 120 years ago or so, his people began to migrate back to Jerusalem. All who were able and wanted to would go back to Jerusalem, and they would set up life there. 100 years is a long time. Some of you are old enough to remember 100 years ago. It's a long time ago, right? 100 years is a long time. Then Nehemiah is still in the city of Susa. He has a very high, respectable position. He's cupbearer to the king. That means he tastes the wine to ensure that it is not poisoned before the king tastes the wine. That's how important his job is. That's how trusted he is. He's got a very wealthy place and a secure spot. He also has a brother named Hanani. Hanani now lives in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem and, and Hanani has made a four-month journey across Jerusalem to the city of Susa, where he greets Nehemiah, his wealthy brother. And Nehemiah says to him, Hanani, how are things back in the homeland? And Hanani says, not good, my friend, not good. The people are in disarray. Here's what it said exactly. The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. They are in a pathetic situation. And this is really important because these are the people through whom the Messiah will be born. This is the context of what's going on there. And so, we, so this is why Nehemiah takes it so personally and begins what will be our second point, the, 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 his, his social activism that he's going to be a part of. But in the moment, we want to see why this is such a big deal, why this story is such an important story about the rebuilding of the walls, because God was not just trying to protect the city of Jerusalem. God is trying to bring about deliverance and redemption through his Messiah, Jesus, the ultimate son of David. That's the story that God is writing, and that's why this particular part of it has to get fixed. 
That's why you want to be careful about saying, well, Nehemiah built a wall, so we got to build a wall, right? Or Nehemiah did this, so we got to do that. No, because we don't see our, we're not the same place in the story that Nehemiah was. So when you're interpreting the Old Testament, you got to keep in mind that big story. That's why sometimes the Old Testament will have things in it that you wouldn't apply to today. You know, because we're on this side of Jesus. We've got to understand where the story is, where it's going, and what it is about. And so if we were to look ahead, you would see that Jesus shows up onto the scene about 400 years later. And Jesus in John chapter 5 and verse 39 is talking to some religious people. And he says these words, which are really important for us as we think about the Old Testament. The words that Jesus says are these. John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Now think about that. Jesus is speaking about the scriptures. He's not speaking about the New Testament. He's speaking about the Old Testament. He's speaking to the religious people of his time. And he says, you look at the scriptures because they, you know they will give to you the means of eternal life. And then he says, and they... And and, and it is they that bear witness about me. What's Jesus saying? The Old Testament is about me. That's why I said to you at the beginning of this point that this, the key to inter scriptural interpretation is Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate one who is the ultimate David who, uh, who, who comes to give his life for his people. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. Everything's pointing to Jesus. We want to have what we would call a Christocentric perspective as we look at the redemptive history of the Bible. The key to scriptural interpretation is to point ultimately to Jesus Christ. Then, number two, the key to social activism. Okay? Now, Nehemiah hears this story about the disarray of his homeland, and it, it, it breaks his heart. It breaks his heart. And so, as Dominique read for you already, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants confessing their sins. And ultimately, he ends that prayer by saying, Lord, give me success in the sight of the king. And I was cupbearer to the king. The key to social activism is prayer. That's point number two. The key to social activism is prayer. You see, what Nehemiah had done is Nehemiah had determined that he would leave his secure position at the right hand of the king. And that he would go then, and, be, and if God gave him that opportunity, he would do what he could to fix what was wrong in his homeland. He got involved in various social projects. The one he's most famous for is the rebuilding of the wall. And they rebuilt it in 52 days, something which had taken over 100 years of living there never to get done. The leader shows up, and he's able to get the job done. Nehemiah tells us how he organized the troops, how he dealt with opposition, how he made sure that this project was able to get completed. And within 52 days, we see that they rebuilt the walls of the people. But he also was involved in the project I mentioned at the beginning of trying to correct some of the social evils that were happening. There were enemies from without. He had to deal with them. 
but there was also oppression from within. There were the wealthy among him that were not that were taking advantage of the poor among them. And he was basically saying, how can it be that we're going to build this great wall uh, to protect us from the evils outside of there when we've got evil right here within our own midst? You're taking advantage of them. You've got to stop doing that. And so they stopped doing that. And in fact, Nehemiah writes later in this book that he, he kept table for 150 people on his, on his own property, feeding that many people every day. He also says that for 12 years, he refused to take a salary from the king. So there's the social activism, but not just the building of the wall. It was creating economic fairness among the people. So these are the great things that Nehemiah did. But what I want you to see is that at the root of those things was prayer. It was prayer that motivated his activism. It was prayer that motivated his concern for the place around him. And so I want to see a couple of prerequisites to prayer. First prerequisites for, to prayer. The first one is time, and the second one is tears. It says right at the very beginning, when he heard about this, I sat down and mourned and wept and mourned for many days, literally 16 weeks for 16 weeks, if you were to follow the text there carefully, for 16 weeks, he wept and he prayed. He had a burden for the, the, the people of his homeland, and he had a prayer to the Lord, and the prayer is summarized there in those, those verses which follow him. You see, if we want to really make a difference in the world, the first thing you do is pray. You bathe your heart in prayer because otherwise you will not know what needs to be done. You will not know what to do about things. And so you need to spend time in prayer. And even it says here, fasting, seeking the Lord. So many times we say, I just got a job to do, got something to do. And we haven't taken time to really pray deeply. Nehemiah had a burden for his people. And he had the willingness to pray for his people. And these are important prerequisites. You've got to spend time and tears. And then Nehemiah gives to us a very clear pattern. We'll just touch on it briefly because we've talked about prayer in recent weeks, but we see it here in this text as well. The, the four aspects that we see of his prayer, which are worth, worthy of your emulation, are these. Number one, adoration. Number two, confession. Number three, appeal. Number four, action. Action. Adoration. We see in the first few verses as he says, uh, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and, and, and steadfast love with those who love him, that's adoration. He's, as we've talked before, he's opening his eyes to the greatness of God so that the size of his need will be seen in relationship to the size of his God, that he won't shrink God to the size of his knees, need, but that he will bring the size of his need to the greatness of his God. You've got to see how great God is or else you will just begin to worry about how big your problem is. That's what he did. Adoration is consistent in all of Scripture. And then he followed that with confession. We see in verse 7, we have acted very corruptly against against you and have not kept the commandments. Confession. Lord, I'm a part of this problem too. We are a part of this problem too. We confess to you. It's interesting to me that Nehemiah is not in Jerusalem. He's not guilty for the acts of his 
part, his brothers there for not building the wall, but he felt it was his responsibility. He saw them himself in them. And so often we will look at problems out there in the world and we think it's all about someone else. And if we forget, we are part of that problem too. That when we do that, we're a part of that problem too. Confession. And then his appeal. Now, Lord, give me success and grant me mercy in the sight of this man. He asked God to open the hearts of the king. The same king who had stopped the rebuilding of the wall earlier is now the king he's going to ask to open up the wall for him. This is a dangerous thing that he's going to do. And then if you were to read through chapter 2, that he, what, what he does is he then takes a tremendous risk of bringing this need before the king unsolicited in the hope that God would honor that request and soften that king's heart. So prayer, while it begins in the closet, it ends up in the marketplace. Prayer while it begins alone in privacy with time and with tears, with adoration, confession, and our appeal to the Lord. Ultimately, prayer leads to action, to doing what it is God has called us to do. And I believe this is why, and if you're to look at Nehemiah throughout, you would see that prayer is the undercurrent throughout much of what he's doing. For example, when he first begins to talk to the king and lets him know about the problem, and the, and the king said, well, what do you want me to do? And he said, and I said a prayer to the God of heaven, and then I answered. I mean, it's like in between the question, in between your question and my answer, he shot up a prayer. Why? Because prayer was as natural as breathing for him. All of what he did was couched in prayer. So many of us are so quick to act and so slow to pray. If we pray, we will act well and properly, okay? The key to social activism is prayer. And then finally, the key to spiritual growth is Scripture. The key to spiritual growth is Scripture. And in order to talk about this, I only have just a moment, and I didn't have Dominique read this section. It's found in the eighth chapter, because after Nehemiah rebuilt the walls of the city, he was involved in reforming the hearts of the people. That's the second half of the book. He rebuilds the walls of the city, and then he's reforming the hearts of the people. And the people's hearts are reformed and brought to uh, repentance and growth and maturity because of their exposure to the Scriptures. Their exposure to the Scriptures. And so we see in chapter 8, just very briefly, if you can follow, and I did print this on the back of your message notes so you could see it. All the people gathered as one man in the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all could understand, and they heard on the first day, the seventh month, and he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law and Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform this is the first example of a pulpit all right he stood on a wooden platform before the people there are probably 40,000 people there that day they're all standing around Okay, and he stood on a wooden platform before the people that, uh, that they had made for their purpose. And beside him stood 13 guys. 
verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads to the worship of the Lord with their faces to the, to the, to the ground. And then these guys, these Levites, these assistants, it says in verse 7, they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly and gave the sense so that the people understood the meaning. You see what's going on here? This is a great example of what we might call one of the first sermons, right? Because what Ezra did is he read the book of the law, and because a lot of them by this time did not read Hebrew anymore, they had to explain what it meant and apply it to their lives. That's why verse 7 and 8 talks us that the Levites were helping the people to understand the law. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense that explains what it means so the people understood the reading. Yeah, yeah. How do we teach it? We teach it by reading the scriptures, by explaining the sense so that people understand what it means. You know, I have to admit, this has been a little bit of a tough day for me to come in. You know, I had a lot going on in my life this week. I mean, you know, my wife ends up having unexpected surgery. Uh, you know, I have various things. And in, in addition to all that, two different funerals to perform. Lots going on. And so there's a real part of me that says, I want to say something really snazzy and catchy this Sunday morning. I want to make it easy. Let me just tell a bunch of stories. Let's all go home and feel good. But I don't have that. Uh, that's not my job, is it? I don't want to be boring. But my job is to teach the scripture. That's, that's what I'm here to do. That's what Ezra did. And so I have to trust that these are the words that God wants us to hear, that he wants us to know that the key to scriptural interpretation is Jesus, the story about Jesus, the, 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 the beautifully broken, rescued world that Jesus is renewing by his death and resurrection, that that story is the compelling arc of the scriptures. And that the key to social action is prayer, being people bathed in prayer. Because a lot of us, especially in an election season like this, we're all into what's got to be done, right? I mean, look at the last week and, look at the, and listen to the next week, and you will see a lot of rah-rah about what's going to be done. And you will probably be as cynical about it or have been as I, right? In fact, some of you will say, I can't stomach it, <laughs> right? Well, that's the way things go in the world. How do we interpret our lives in the midst of all of that? Well, the key to social truth and activism is prayer, to seek God and to seek God's Word. And if you want to really grow spiritually, you need to do what those people did. Here's how you hear the Word of God. In verses 1 and 2, they gathered expectantly. I wonder when you came here today, did you gather saying, all right, let's hear what God has to say today. Let's hear what the Word of God has to teach today. That's part of our job, to come in expectantly, yeah. And then to read it attentively. I wonder today, as the Scripture was read, as Dominique was reading it, as you listened to me read the Scripture, as we read Psalm 113, did you find yourself saying, of all the, thing, of all the words that get said today, the most important words are the words of God printed in Scripture. Everybody shut up. Let me hear it good. I want to hear it. Because that's the Word of God. I've got to read it attentively, paying attention to it as they did. And then, of course, we need to apply it 
accurately. That's why God has given to the church pastors and teachers who are there to uh, equip God's people for the work of the ministry. Why? Because people need to be taught the Word of God, and it's my job to do that. You know, I may want to buy you ice cream today, but what I need to do is to give you a meal, right? That's my job, right? So we need to apply it accurately, and that's our responsibility as well. And then finally, receive it joyfully. Here's what happened at the end of their preaching that day. It said the people began to weep. They weeped. They wept. They do not mourn. And Nehemiah and Ezra said, do not mourn or weep, because when they heard what God expected of them, it made their hearts burdened, because they thought, I'm so far from what God wants. And he said, no, go your way. Eat the fat and drinks, this is verse 10, and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who had nothing already, for this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You didn't know that came from this text, did you? The joy of the Lord is my strength. Why? Because the joy of the Lord is found in the Word of God, and the Word of God, which tells us about this beautiful, broken, redeemed, renewed creation that God has done. Even those unworthy people who God continued to apply grace to, He does it for you and me. So let's have joy and receive it joyfully. The, it said, be quiet. This day is holy. Do not be grieved. Verse 12, and all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So when you go from here, please do not go morose. Go with rejoicing because there is a God who loves you and gave himself for you, a God who will not give up on you, has not given up on you, a God who gave his life for you, and that's something worth celebrating, right? Let's pray as we close. Father, thank you for never giving up on us. We need to grow. Help us to grow through your word. As we receive the Lord's table this morning, help us to receive it joyfully for the God who gave himself for us. In his name I pray. Amen.